See, I love making up new words. I, I get particularly excited when I confuse together two words to make up one word. Do you remember the word devotement? We made that one up. Well, earlier on this week, uh, it was reported quite widely in the news, they don't normally report on this at all, that the word of the year this year is the word permacrisis. Uh, permacrisis. Uh, it's a word describing the feeling of living through an extended period of insecurity or instability. Uh, one really gloomy author wrote this. This word sums up how truly awful 2022 has been for so many people. Permacrisis. Well, there's no doubting, is there, that we have been through a tough season, both nationally and internationally. We've been in a permacrisis, a pandemic, uh, multiple lockdowns, political instability, three prime ministers in three months. I mean, who needs that? Uh, the war in Ukraine, climate change, a cost of living crisis, the passing of our much-loved queen uh, over our nation, the energy squeeze. But too, if you're part of our church family, you'll know that we've been through our own season, and it's felt to me a bit like a permacrisis, the sudden passing of two much-loved members of our church family, the roller coaster journey that we've been on together as a church family as we've journeyed with Stuart and with Hannah, uh, with baby Grace. Uh, we continue to pray for her complete healing. She's got one more round of chemotherapy to go uh, before she completes her course. Various folk, even last night, in and out of hospital and different life challenges. And maybe right now you're thinking as an individual, wow, permacrisis, phooey, that's nothing new to me. My life, my life has been one perpetual state of permacrisis. Well, of course, it should be said, shouldn't it, that to some extent these things are relative. What is a crisis for one person might not be for somebody else. But the reality is, if we're going through a tough time, then it's a crisis for us, and we need to name it as such. Of course, the word permacrisis is, a, is hyperbole as well, isn't it? But nonetheless, maybe it's a helpful word to us, a word that can start to make sense out of the season that we've been journeying through a way that we can make sense of the constant state of anxiety that we've been wrestling with. Well, permacrisis is a word that perfectly captures the state of God's people as we've been journeying through our teaching series looking at the story of Joshua. God's people have been in the wilderness for decades. They've been enslaved. Their old leader, Moses, who was a great leader, something of a comfort blanket to them, has died and then finally, under the leadership of Joshua, they arrive in the promised land and they suddenly face a whole series of new battles. There are giants and grasshoppers where they thought there was going to be a land that was flowing with milk and honey. I bet God's people found themselves longing for the quieter day, the day that was never coming. But the good news is this this morning, is that God is in the business of turning curses into blessings, death into life, and ashes into beauty. Our God is the God who can bring broken or, or turn brokenness into purpose. Well, as I read through my Bible, the, the story of God's people is pretty consistent throughout history. When God provided for them through miracles, they humbled themselves, they declared all of a sudden that the world was great. God, we're going to live for you. We're going to be your people. We're going to be really obedient. And for a season, they walked in straight lines. But then when the tests came and the challenges of life came their way, things became difficult, especially in the desert. They would turn their back on God. They would wander quite literally in circles. 
Now, as we rejoin the story of Joshua this morning, Joshua is leading his people ever deeper into the promised land, and their state of permacrisis continues. In fact, it gets worse. And it gets worse because of a problem which is utterly self-inflicted. It's a lack of obedience, a lack of hearing, we might say, a, a lack of listening to what God had already said to them. Well, today in our story, they find themselves, God's people this is, getting deceived by their enemies through a very clever ruse. And once again, it's happening because of compromise over the standards that God had called them to. If you've got a Bible, don't worry if you haven't, you can listen to what I'm going to read. Turn to Joshua chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through to 15 uh, to start with. Verse 1 says this, Now when all the kings of the west of the Jordan heard about these things, these were the, the winning of the battles that had gone on previously in the story, the kings in the hill country and in the western foothills and all along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, they came together to wage war against Joshua and against Israel. There's a confederation, there's an alliance of nations being built against God's people. However, when the people of uh, Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, these were two battles that happened that God's people won, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wine skins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and they wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and to the Israelites, Hey, we've come from a distant country. Would you make a treaty with us? The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How can we make a treaty with you? Hivites is the other name for the Gibeonites. We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you, and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of, of the Jordan. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you, but now look how dry and moldy it is. All these wineskins were filled new, but see how cracked they are, and our clothes and our sandals are worn out from our very long journey. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. And then, oh dear, Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified the oath. So God's people here in the story are getting tricked by an enemy, the Gibeonites, who without doubt were included in the big list of people that were set for destruction for a group of people who were going to be moving out of the land so that God's people could go and inhabit it. Now, I don't know if you heard it, but verse 14, 15 are like the anchor verses for this chapter. It says there, the Israelites sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. Joshua made a treaty of peace with them, which was then ratified by an oath, by an unbreakable promise. So Joshua and his leadership team here are making a deal where they should never have been making a deal, and in doing so, we're told they failed to consult with God. I wonder if you've ever done that. Have you ever gone after something which seemed too good to be true? You've set your heart on it, and then wittingly or unwittingly, you failed to ask God whether that thing is good for you and aligned with his will and his purposes for your life. Have you ever done that? 
I know I have. Do you know, on occasions, I was thinking about this this week, I've, I've actually deliberately not asked for God's wisdom because I knew that God would say no if I asked him. Have you ever done that? When I was at Moreland's Bible College, people used to do this. You were supposed to check out with God whether you should date somebody or not. And nine times out of ten, nobody bothered asking because they knew God would say no. <laughs> I don't like hearing the word no, even from God. But as we discover in our text this morning, that approach to life and to faith can cause us some serious trouble. In fact, it breaks God's heart. Now, three things are happening in this story, which when you bring them together and piece them together, remind us of exactly this fact, that if we don't consult with God, things go wrong. But we're reminded too in these three things that God is the God who can redeem even the worst mistakes that we might have made in life. That's the good news this morning. So in the story, we see several things. We see a dastardly deception. We see some wonky wisdom and we see God's gushing grace, both towards his people and even towards his enemies. So firstly, the, the dastardly deception. That's not easy to say. Do you know, it's really not hard, is it, to feel some level of sympathy for the Gibeonites in this moment. At one level, I utterly understand why they resorted to trickery and deception to try and save their skins. They'd heard all the stories of how Jericho fell just by God's people marching around it. They heard about how Ai had fallen to the Jews um, under incredible circumstances. Here were a people who knew that their goose was cooked. The Gibeonites may well have been pagans, but they knew enough about what was going on here. that They knew that behind Joshua stood the God of the universe. This was so obvious by the way those two great cities had fallen into the hands of Joshua and his people. We, we've been thinking about that in previous weeks. So probably wisely, the Gibeonites here opt out of this military alliance which is being formed by all the other kings of the surrounding nations. Because they knew it doesn't matter how big or how powerful your army might be, God is always bigger and mightier. And I wonder if some of us need to hear that this morning. The enemy might look big, he might look powerful, but God is always bigger and he is always mightier than anything you or I might face. So the Gibeonites come up with this very cunning, brilliant two-part plan. It's disguise and it's flattery. It's a beautiful cocktail and it works every single time. I'm not trying to encourage that you use it in saying that, by the way. So first off, they pretend that they've come from a distant land. They put on some worn-out clothes like mine. They, they go to their bread basket, and they find, like we always have in ours, some moldy bread. They find some cracked wineskins, and they make it look like they've been traveling for months and months and months. The truth is, they were actually from 25 miles up the road. They'd come from Southampton down to Christchurch. But their trick somehow convinced God's people that they were from some distant land, that they've been traveling for ages. The moldy bread, the the worn-out clothes, the cracked wineskins were all evidence of that. Now, this was a trick that worked better than they might have imagined because God's people were gullible in this moment. But worse than that, I think they were actually experiencing some spiritual arrogance at this point in the story. God's people were being spiritually arrogant and full of pride. And we've all heard the proverb, haven't we? Pride comes before the fall. You see, pride, when we wrestle with pride, can impair our good judgment. And ultimately, it leads to destruction. And spiritual pride is the worst of all prides because it leads us to believe that we can live without God. 
and we forget that all good things come from God. So there's a load of pride going on in this story, and and the Gibeonites are stroking the egos and stroking that prideful approach of God's people. But too, we discover from the story that the Gibeonites used flattery. They used uh, used smooth talk, which was covered in flowery words. And you know, proud people really love flattery. How do I know that? Well, you can work that out for yourself. But anyway, proud people really love flattery because flattery wrongly affirms everything that we've arrogantly come to believe is true about ourselves. The Gibeonites were pouring their flattery on like double cream with all their talk about, oh, the Israelite God, well, he's delivered you um, from, from Egypt. He's given you victory over all the kings of the Jordan. Up to that point, it was true. But then he goes on, therefore, God must have made you a really special people. God must think you're absolutely great that he should be so good to you. You must be his favorites. Well, at one level, that was true. But actually, they were pouring on flattery like nobody's business. Of course, we know, and I suspect deep down God's people knew in this moment that all of this was much more about God's goodness than it was about their goodness as a people. This is all about God's grace. We'll come on to that in just a moment. Verse 14, they did not ask for counsel from the Lord. The whole thing smacks of pride and self-sufficiency, doesn't it? God's people get caught out by this deception because of their pride. But two, and this leads to my second point, they get caught out by their wonky wisdom. Let me give you two great Bible verses about wisdom. I could give you hundreds. Proverbs 9.10 and James 1.5. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives how? He gives generously, it says in our text. We have a God who gives his wisdom generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. What an amazing promise for those of us who know and love Christ, that we know the God who is willing to give wisdom generously. Why on earth do we ever Google anything? If only Joshua and his leaders in this moment had feared God and sought to come into relationship with him, gone to the God who gives wisdom generously, I wonder if the outcome would have been different. You see, what we see in this passage is the danger of failing to commit our ways to God. It's the peril, isn't it, of a prayerless life. It's the peril of walking by sight and not by faith. Making decisions based on how things might appear is a dangerous business. But this is what good wisdom looks like. Before entering into any alliance, and this is what God's people should have done, before taking a partner, going into a new job, submitting to any proposition with somebody else which means an alliance with them, we should be sure to ask God about it. And when we ask God about it, he promises to give us wisdom. We shouldn't rely on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own initiative. I'm sure it's good. But if it's anything like mine, it's probably not perfect. I wonder how often do I make wrong decisions because it looked right, it sounded right, and it seemed right, and yet it was wrong. Have you ever been there and done that? Share some stories afterwards if they're appropriate. You see, doing what is right is not always easy. Jesus spoke, didn't he, of a path that is narrow, that leads to life, and that's the path that we're called to walk. He said, go down that path, but avoid the wide path that leads to destruction. The trouble is with narrow paths, and if ever you've been on a hike, you'll know this to be true, narrow paths take extra effort and more due diligence to try and find. It's no wonder we walk on the wide path and not on the narrow path that leads 
to life. What we see in this story is that pride is making God's people prayerless. If you're somebody who doesn't pray much, check out your pride levels. Self-sufficiency is death to the prayer life. God wants us to seek for his will. He, he longs for us to look to him for what we should do. He longs that we would go to him as our spiritual sat-nav. Now, the failure of Joshua and the leaders in this moment gets them into some serious hot water. Within three days, this deception is discovered. Now, as often, what happens with the consequences of sin is God's people were going to have to live with this decision that they'd made for the rest of their lives. As you look at verses 19 through to 21, we discover that God's people actually said to, to Joshua, well, let's ditch them, let's kill these people off. But they'd made an unbreakable promise to care for the Gibeonites, and they're going to be held to it. Now, let me take you to the really good news this morning that I shared at the very beginning of this message. Our God is in the business of turning curses into blessings. Our God is in the business of turning death into new life, ashes into beauty, brokenness into purpose. God can take my mistakes and he can take your mistakes and he can turn them into his opportunities. How do I know that? Well, listen to what goes on in the rest of the story. Verse 21, they continued, let them live, but they will be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summons the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us saying we live a long way from you, from you when actually you live near us 25 miles up the road? You're now under a curse. You'll never be released from the service of the woodcutters and the water carriers for the house of my God." They answered Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and wipe out all of the inhabitants from it before you. So we fear for our lives because of you, and that's why we did this. We're now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. Here comes God's grace. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and did not kill them. That day, he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place where the Lord would choose. And that is what they are still doing to this day. Can you see here in the story that in God's grace, the Gibeonite deception turned out to be a great blessing. That's the amazing way that the grace of God works. He's able to turn a curse into a blessing, a, a mistake into an opportunity. Now, it's true that they would have to live with the natural consequences of their sin, but God in his grace forgives our sin. God in his sin is, is actually able to overcome the mistakes that we make, and he's able to bring blessing out of sin. If you know the verse, this is Romans 8:28 stuff. If you don't know the verse, look it up. God is able to take something, um, something bad and turn it into something good. And the amazing thing in the story is God's grace can be seen for his own people, his chosen people, yes, the Israelites, but God's grace is even being expressed to the Gibeonites. Who got the better end of this deal? Well, on the one hand, the Israelites got an endless source of free labor. That was acceptable in that day. It's clearly not today. It was a win for them. But on the other hand, the Gibeonites had their lives saved, and it was also a big win for them. But here's the really big thing from the text, and with this I'm going to finish. Did you notice where they ended up at the end of the story? Verses 26 and 27. They ended up in a place to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord. Well, what happened at the altar? It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of worship. 
the Gibeonites who started out as pagans end up serving at the very, very heart of the Jewish religion. Those who were far off from God came incredibly close. They came to the place where the animals were sacrificed to the Lord daily. They had front row seats to watch God work out this object lesson of substitution day by day. The Gibeonites, these pagan people, learned that blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sin. That blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Can you see from the story that our God is the God who keeps his oath even when it hurts, even when it hurts to the point of death on the cross? I wonder if you can see yourself in this story this morning. I'm a Gibeonite. I'm a Gibeonite. I was once far off from God and didn't deserve to be in relationship with him, but because God's grace has no limits, he brought me near. Even when I didn't deserve to be close, he drew me close to himself. And you know, that's the story of those who are being baptized this morning. In being baptized, they're saying, I'm not being baptized because of my own goodness, my own righteousness, because of my own greatness. I'm being baptized because of the grace of God. I'm a Gibeonite, but he draws me near. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 2. It's describing me. Maybe it's describing you. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. Like the rest, you were by nature deserving of wrath. But now, those are the most two beautiful combination of words in the whole of Scripture. But now, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved. But now... That's the difference grace makes. I can be far away from God, but now he invites me near because of the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. Isn't this a beautiful picture? It's an invitation to draw near to a holy God. Not because we're worthy, but because of God's grace, which he lavishes upon us. We be still for a moment. Let's pray. I want to invite our musicians to, to be ready to lead us as well in a song. We're going to sing out a song in a moment that actually is a prayer itself. It's a song that, in a sense, invites God to draw us near to himself, to change us, to transform us, to mold us and to shape us. Lord, I just want to say thank you to you so much this morning for your words. Thank you that even in this story of a people who seem so far away from you, Lord, you've brought them near to yourself. You've made a way where there was no way. And Lord, we rejoice this morning that as soon as Claire are baptized this morning, Lord, in a sense, they're just proclaiming exactly the same thing. You've made a way where there was no way. You've brought two people who were far off, close to yourself, into relationship with you. We thank you. And we rejoice in your gushing grace this morning. Just before we sing out this prayer together, I want us just to be still for a moment. It might just be today. You just, for the first time or again, just want to come close to God and say, Lord, invite me into that relationship with you. A relationship where you invite me to come. Draw us close.
As you take those steps this morning, would you know that God's grace is sufficient for you today? You can take your mistakes and turn them into his amazing opportunities. He can take what you might consider to be a curse and make it a blessing. God can take all things and use them for good. And if there's one thing God would love to do for you today, it's to say to you, you're forgiven. In Jesus' name, you're forgiven. Lord, help us hold on to that promise, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.